tuning in to Microbiome Matters, a podcast for healthcare professionals and researchers brought to you by Yakult Science. This podcast aims to share latest research and insights from experts about the science behind our gut microbiome. Hi, I'm Nev. And I'm Britt. And we're the hosts of Microbiome Matters. Before we get started, we'd like to say thanks for tuning in, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you're enjoying listening, we'd really appreciate if you could rate the Microbiome Matters podcast on your streaming app and share it with your friends and colleagues. This will really help us to reach more people. That's it from us. Back to the episode. Hi, I'm Niv. And I'm Britt. And welcome back to the Microbiome Matters podcast. Today, we have with us Kirsten Jackson, who will be speaking to us about functional gut disorders and IBS. Kirsten is a UK registered consultant dietitian specialising in irritable bowel syndrome. Kirsten graduated from Hertfordshire University in 2012, following which she worked for the NHS for two years and then left to set up her own private practice, the Food Treatment Clinic, which is an online clinic providing MDT services for people with IBS. In 2018, Kirsten moved to the UAE, where she has worked as the lead dietitian for King's College Hospital in Dubai and was part of the team which developed the first British healthcare facility in the Middle East. In 2020, Kirsten left her role at King's College to have her baby and develop her business further. Kirsten is an official media spokesperson for the British Dietetic Association and an expert advisor to the IBS network. Thanks for joining us today, Kirsten. No, thank you guys for having me. Okay, so our first question for you is, what are functional gut disorders? How are they characterized and how are they different from other types of gastrointestinal disorders in terms of symptoms and prognosis? Yeah, sure. This is a great question because I think there is um, a lot of vagueness around these conditions sometimes and patients, when they're often diagnosed with them, feel like they don't really have a proper diagnosis. So in terms of definition, they are disorders of what we call the gut-brain access. So somewhere between the gut and the brain, things aren't working properly. Um, And basically, they are a collection of conditions which have a combination of the following. So visceral hypersensitivity, motility changes, altered mucosal and immune function, altered microbiota and altered central nervous system processing. So a collection of different things going on and something which might also help explain it or make it more confusing depending on which way you look at it is sometimes explaining what they are not. So unlike other conditions which maybe involve the gut, there's no structural changes with these conditions in the gut. There's no organic disease in terms of there's nothing that we can actually see or that's necessarily measurable often. There's no systemic disease. So things like the flu, which covers the entire body, that there's nothing like this. And also there's no metabolic disease, which is when, you know, your metabolism would be um, disrupted. So things like familial um, hypercholesteremia, which I can never pronounce, but it's sometimes easy to kind of explain what it's not because sometimes it can seem really unspecific, but actually there is a set definition for them. Um, And symptoms can really range depending on the type. So there are conditions within that that involve the esophagus, some that involve the rectum, the stomach, um, your your colon, your small bowel, every part of the gut, essentially. Well, thank you for explaining that. That's really interesting to know how there's not necessarily a specific symptom or prognosis and that actually you've got to look at what 
that's not involved in the disorders. But we'd also like to know um, if there's an association between these functional gastrointestinal disorders and the microbiota or any specific changes that you see with the disease or the severity. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to answer this question uh, mostly around irritable bowel syndrome, which is my specialist area. And to be honest, when we look at the research, this is probably where most of the research is actually concentrated. Now, I'll give you some examples because there is some research out there. But the issue with the research that we have is it often varies. Some of it's conflicting um, just because it's quite a difficult area to study um, to get accurate um, type results. So the limitations that we currently have in the research are some of the studies are quite small in size. There's a lot of animal studies, which we know are very different to how the human body reacts. So they might be interesting, but we can't really take much from them. Um, And then looking at sometimes different studies are processing their results a little bit differently. So for me as a dietitian or maybe other people listening to this thinking, well, what do we do with those results? I would just say proceed with caution when when you have a look at them. However, in IBS, as an example, the link between irritable bowel syndrome and microbiota is is quite interesting. So in IBS, we technically don't know 100% what causes it, but we know that there's a link to gastrointestinal infections. So there's, there's a link to microbiota change there. We know there's some overlap, and this is more emerging research now, with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So again, that's a change in the bacteria levels in the small bowel and IBS. There's a big connection there. Um, we know that in some research, that there's a reduction in the diversity of the microbiome in people who have irritable bowel syndrome compared to healthy controls. Having said that, there is some research showing that there isn't, and this is a frustration. Um, and then in terms of specific um, gut microbiome, or bacteria there is some specifics coming out so looking at bifidobacterium and lactobacillus which i can never say so you'll have to all forgive me when you're listening to this um those ones seem to be um either raised or decreased in in people with irritable bowel syndrome and again there are some research showing that this is not necessarily the case as well so it's hard to, to have sweeping statements just yet Interestingly, there's um, some now research looking at short-chain fatty acids as well, which are produced from the gut microbiome as a sort of like a side thing, which but it has an interaction with our body. Um, so looking at propionate and also butyrate, and um, we see in people with IBS C specifically that butyrate um, they're reduced, and also um, the butyrate specifically is increased in people with IBS D, um, which is quite interesting because potentially then in the future we can maybe say let's target those short fatty acids to potentially help with IBS symptoms but we're not quite there yet so there's a lot of potentially and maybes but we need more research and um, because when we look at short chain fatty acids we know that they actually have an effect on how the gut works so looking at GI physiology and um, they impact things like the, how the gut contracts and um, visual pain so how we're actually feeling pain back in our brains um, and also it has an impact on the gut barrier so really really interesting and hopefully in the future we'll get more research there and then interesting and um, probably one of the more recent research is actually looking at fungi. So I think when we look at or we talk about microbiome, often we're just thinking about bacteria, but obviously microbiome means more than just bacteria. It's other elements going on in the gut there as well. And there have been some fungi which have been increased um, specifically in people with IBS, but that's very, very kind of 
new and unfortunately while it might be interesting to people like myself who are maybe a little bit geeky in this area we can't make sweeping statements and say okay we need to reduce those and we're going to give that person antifungal medication and things like that not quite yet yeah thank you for giving us an insight into all of the research that's there around ibs and the gut microbiota and i think it's really interesting that you mentioned that there's research around fungi as well um something that's not talked about as much. Uh, While we're on that topic of the microbiota, uh, we're wondering, are there any dietary recommendations for those with IBS that can help to support the microbiota? Yes. So really, really good question. So we know at this stage that the microbiome is linked in some way to IBS, but we're not quite at that stage to say, okay, that specific type of bacteria is definitely causing it. So we're going to kill it off or that one's definitely too low so we can increase it. We're not at that specific level. However, we know that that there is um, a difference in microbiome in people with IBS. So ways that we can improve this are sort of more on a general recommendation. So, for example, we know that everybody should be, and this is not just people with IBS, but this is more on a general healthy population basis, aiming for to get 30 different plant-based foods per week, sort of sources in their, in their diet. And this is going to help them increase their gut microbiota variety, which we know is reduced, or we think we know is reduced in IBS. So do you see what I'm saying there? We can't specifically say that's a specific IBS recommendation just yet, but the whole population should be doing it because we know variety in microbiota is good for our health. So, you know, that's something that we can say, well, why not advise that in people with IBS as well? 30 grams of fiber per day, we know is going to help with gut microbiota. Again, this is a really general recommendation. Um, Regular exercise is being shown to help as well with microbiota. Prebiotics, um, I would say be very cautious. So we often see prebiotics as a supplement, but we actually know that these don't really help with IBS symptoms and they may actually make symptoms worse because prebiotics are feeding the gut microbiome and a side result of that is we're going to produce more gas and that's going to trigger symptoms. However, looking at someone's diet and making sure their gut generally has prebiotics in their food to a a certain extent, it is supposed to be good for the microbiome or microbiota. So uh, just avoiding like long-term low FODMAP restrictions, um, which we know even in that four-week period, which we typically use when we're doing this process, that that actually reduces levels of bifidobacteria. So just being careful around restrictions and also just trying to get that diversity in really really um useful practical dietary advice for healthcare professionals working with people in ibs so thanks for sharing that we do know that ibs is not just about gastrointestinal symptoms and you mentioned some of these related to the symptoms and prognosis in your first answer but it can also affect mental health and social aspects of a patient's life what is some practical advice that clinicians and dietitians can provide to help IBS patients navigate through these challenges? Yeah, sure. This is a really, really good question. So I think that's really important to understand just how much of an impact it can have. So before I would even jump to the stage of what advice can we give for patients, I think we need to make sure that our own knowledge is really good in this area around the mental health. Because I think, unfortunately, in healthcare, 
Um, because IBS isn't a life-threatening condition, that actually we kind of downplay it. We think, oh, it's not that serious. We'll just tell them this. Maybe, I'm not saying everybody, but there seems to be certain clinicians potentially work in this area who do think that. Um, so we need to kind of look at ourselves first and educate ourselves because the research, again, always varied in IBS, it seems to be the way, shows fifth, between 54 to 95% of people with IBS have a psychiatric use disorder. And that's something that we need to be really, really aware of. And IBS itself can impact and will impact in someone literally from the moment they get up in the morning, what they're wearing, what they eat, how long it takes to even get ready for work, what work they can do, their relationships with people, being able to be in a a romantic relationship, going out for meals, every element of their life that they do that maybe other people take for granted is impacted, impacted by IBS. So I think that's something just really, really important to consider and really acknowledge before thinking, right, so now I understand the level of impact, how can I help help people? So in terms of that, it really depends probably what type of clinician you are. So if you're a doctor or you're a psychiatrist or you're a dietitian, it's going to vary what advice you're giving for that person. So if, for instance, you're a dietitian like myself, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to go into full-blown therapy with mental health, of course. However, I can give, you know, basic advice around mindfulness and meditation, that's well within my scope, but also recognizing that there is an element of mental health there and advising that person, perhaps diet isn't the right approach just yet, but perhaps we need to go and see um, somebody for CBT or clinical hypnotherapy, both of which have got research behind them. So even though in my role, I can't take someone through that element necessarily, I can still then advise on what the next step is. Perhaps if you are a doctor, um, you'll be able to actually prescribe potentially mental health medications for that person. I think it's really important just to explain to them all the different ways that they can help themselves and then just support them on what they think is, is, is best for them. And it may be medications, it may be diet, it could be seeing a psychologist and that's going to vary depending on the severity, what the triggers are, what is practical and what else is going on in their life. And I think with IBS, because it is all consuming and it is multifactorial, so it's never just the diet or just the psychiatry, it's everything. It can seem very overwhelming or it is very overwhelming for someone to try and tackle. So it's really our jobs in healthcare to break that down for somebody and help them prioritize okay so what's going to have the biggest impact first and how does that look in my life so breaking it really down into manageable steps so that they're not thinking I, I don't even know where to go with this it's it's our job to kind of guide them step by step um, and probably the last couple last couple of things I'll say and I'll go into some more practical things as well I've come up with um, seeing clients over the years is just to advise people a word of warning probably to stay off social media for their their support um, I used to advise people um, who would say, I feel really alone with this. I don't know who to talk to. I'd say, there's always a Facebook groups that are really great out there. And this might have been good at the time, but I think having been part of some of these Facebook groups online, actually there's a lot of unqualified advice out there. Um, there's maybe other people who aren't getting help telling their stories, etc. And I know people need an outlet, but if you're looking to a group like that to get support, which is going to help you move forward, it might actually have quite a negative impact. So just advice and please stay off social media for that kind of advice because they need to be getting support from professionals for that um, in terms of practical advice so for day to day as I said it impacts their life literally as they get up in the morning so don't forget to ask them that you know what is your routine for the day just to get to really what is it that 
where is it that IBS impacts them and of course depending on your age depending on if you're like a student or if you're retired if you've got young kids if you're working if you're not etc IBS will impact you in different ways and we need to make our suggestions practical so just thinking um, advice around things like if they're going away for holiday um, if they are potentially going to have any accidents while they're in the process of trying to get in control so doing things like speaking to their local pharmacist and making sure they've got like a little toolkit of things to help them in case they have they're, they're in an emergency and um, taking spare clothes out things like um, purchasing clothes that are more comfortable rather than you know trying to fit into maybe clothes that were previously okay just to help with things like body confidence and making sure that they don't feel too self-conscious as much as possible because IBS often knocks that um, helping them look to confide in somebody and explaining them you know how co- to them how common IBS is one in five people have this and often even talking to your boss or talking to um, a relative or a partner obviously we're not especially British people we're not great at talking about things that are taboo but actually if you think about how many people have it chances are either someone else you work with or that person you're talking to will have that problem and so many of my clients will come back and say as soon as I told somebody they're like me too and somebody else so just getting them to try and confide in someone can make them mentally feel a little bit better and also potentially some tips for around working at home because sometimes people have got really understanding bosses and actually the scope for them to work at home just while they're they're gaining control of their, their health condition so making it really practical for them basically I think it's great that you've highlighted how important it is to take this almost holistic approach to managing IBS and you've provided some really great tips there at the end and I'm sure our healthcare professional listeners will find that really helpful. Um, So our next question is also a bit of a practical question. One of the challenges in managing functional gut diseases arises from the fact that the causes of these conditions um, is largely unknown. How could dietitians like yourself help make this process easier and a bit less daunting for clients? Yeah. So as a dietitian, you you need to use your number one skill, which is communication. I think that often gets overlooked. So first of all, you need to listen. And I remember someone telling me this as a student. I just thought, how patronizing, what are they on about? actively listening so not just being quiet while someone talks and then saying okay here's a FODMAP diet and here's a probiotic etc that's your prerogative and you know the research but you need to listen to them and you need to find out what is it that is really the main issues there and as soon as they feel listened to they'll be able to open up to you more and you'll be able to help them in a more effective way and I'd say to you start right at the beginning and please take the time because often this gets overlooked, tell them their diagnosis, explain what is irritable bowel syndrome, or if they have another functional gut disorder, what actually is it? Explain to them that's a specific diagnosis with a definition, so I can say specific treatments, etc. It is not this random thing that the doctor has fobbed them off with, which is often what they feel like, is actually they have a diagnosable condition that's actually treatable as well. At the minute, we don't have any specific treatment necessarily, but we can definitely manage it. And again, that's not just a, they have to put up with these symptoms. There's a treatment plan and explain the science. So a lot of people that I'm seeing, they are, well, of course, when you've got IBS, you will Google everything, you'll research things, and they're very well read. And they like to know the ins and outs of the science. And I think it brings some comfort knowing that there's something on paper and black and white showing, you know, like the low FODMAP diet has over 10 randomized controlled trials on it. 
they like to know that, that it's not just some diet we're going to try for a couple of weeks and see if it works it's got a really good science backing and that's just going to get their confidence level up in you as a dietitian and also give them the confidence that you know they have got a chronic health condition unfortunately but the whole goal of a chronic health condition is to put the the power back in that person's hand so that they can control it. That's really useful to know and in IBS specifically you've already started to touch on some of the dietary strategies and interventions like the low FODMAP diet. Um, How could this help patients manage their condition specifically? And do you have any science or evidence that you can tell us about to demonstrate this? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm not sure if you want me to reference off all the papers. I'm not sure if I can do that off the top of my head. I can definitely explain to you some of the mechanisms with IBS. So with irritable bowel syndrome, typically we look at it in terms of first line and second line approaches. So first line is when you, if you're looking at someone's food diary, you're looking for, and I'll give you some more examples in a minute, but things like, are they having 20 cups of coffee a day and wondering why they've run into the toilet? Are they um, skipping meals? Do they have huge portions, etc., like that? So it's just to give them small um, things that they can work on. And then second line is more looking at the low FODMAP diet. Now, the reason we do it this way is because if you were to go into the low FODMAP diet, which we'll go into in a bit more detail in a second, straight away, it's often too complicated. And if they haven't got the basics, which is often what I tell my clients, then you're never going to get there. And, you know, never mind IBS. If you're eating one meal a day and having 10 cups of coffee and you're maybe smoking a lot as well, which is a trigger and things like this, never mind IBS, you're going to have digestive problems anyway. So we need to kind of get to the the basics first and then move on to the next bit. So in terms of some of the first line things, so let's go through those now. And for anyone listening to this, probably the best thing to go and look at is the BDA guidelines that came out in 2016, um, which I was thinking the other day, oh, they're really recent. And now I'm like, oh, it's 2022 already. I can't believe time has flown that way. But they're still really relevant um, and they're really good in terms of giving you an overview. And they've got the references in it for all of the elements. um, So it's really good. Um, But in terms of first sign then, so I would suggest as well before I go into this is don't forget to target specific symptoms. It is not a one-size-fits-all approach. And if you try to try to take that approach, you could not only not help your patient, but you might actually make your symptoms worse as well. So first of all, looking at things like what I call, they're not what I call, they are drugs. So is there any drugs in the diet in terms of things like caffeine and also alcohol? So those things often get overlooked by patients. And caffeine, we know it's a stimulant um, and it can stimulate the gut, unfortunately, to move. So even people who don't have IBS might even joke about, oh, after I have my first cup of coffee in the morning, I then go, it helps me go. It's a stimulant, that's why we use it. Um, and it's not all bad caffeine, but it is when we when we use it incorrectly as such. So if your gut's already sensitive and then you have a stimulant, it's likely that um, you're going to end up with looser stools. So I wouldn't say to any anybody to exceed more than 400 milligrams a day which is what the general public health guidelines are but that's a really um, vague guideline in terms of for IBS there is no specific guideline and that's what we've always got to remember tailor it to what your patient can have so if they are someone who's got IBSD and they're having two three cups of coffee a day start to reduce them down slowly so they're not getting any kickback from the caffeine withdrawal and um, also keeping it you know before midday so there's no caffeine in the system when they then go back to go to bed because we know poor sleep can be a trigger and um, so that's more an IBSD I would say an IBSC caffeine can actually help a little bit so if they are someone who enjoys a cup coffee in the morning or a couple of coffees in the morning 
I wouldn't necessarily take that away from them. The only other element around caffeine is just to be aware it is a stimulant. It can be linked to increase in anxiety. So regardless of the type of IBS your client has, if they suffer anxiety, which we know is linked to IBS, then and they're drinking coffee um, or lots of tea, because tea is a lot lower in caffeine than coffee would be, just, just ask them um, just to reduce it down slowly. With caffeine as well, please go into more advice, more questions so often they might be having something like from a coffee shop compared to instant there's a huge difference in caffeine content of those elements and alcohol is the other one so in the lockdown they did some research showing that actually the sale of alcohol for at home use went up sadly and even though again there's public health guidelines about alcohol intake there's actually technically no safe amount to have they've just come up with this guideline to help people reduce it down to this amount and again in IBS there's no specific number to say oh you can have this many units and it's fine so somebody could well be having one small glass of wine a day they think it's perfectly normal it's it's legal it's not illegal you know and it's a social drink but actually that has been linked to looser stools and the other thing to remember as well again it's a drug it's got a pharmaceutical effect and if they are low in mood then it will have an impact and it will impact their sleep as well so just looking at goals around that as well um so those are sort of more drug things looking at regular meals as well um so roughly around three meals a day this is just from being practical so we have no research saying three meals exactly or exactly this many hours apart unfortunately but we know that irregular eating which is very vague i know has been linked to ibs so it could be that your patient is just skipping breakfast or they're working through their lunch something like this and they really need to be having that three meals a day one of the best ways I explain it to clients is if you think about it, you've only got three times a day to get your nutrients into your diet. So if you're skipping one whole meal, that's a whole meal where you're not having any fiber, any vitamins, protein, etc. So they need to be eating regularly. And then you can look at portion sizes. So, um, you know, the privately, the amount of money that I've made from people who come in thinking that they have a wheat intolerance is 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 um is silly when actually they just have huge portions of wheat. And we know that wheat contains fructans, which is your FODMAPs. And in everybody, even people who don't have IBS, these will be broken down by your microbiota, your gut bacteria actually in your large bowel, it produces gas. So the more you have, the more gas you're going to have. So just look at the portion size because sometimes a simple reduction in portions can really help with this. Then looking at portions in terms of especially fatty foods. So there is something called the gastrocolic reflex in irritable, well, not in irritable bowel syndrome, in everybody's gut. And it's like a nervous system flush. So whenever you eat something, this happens in everybody. It sort of like pushes stuff along to make room for your new food coming in. Now, unfortunately, in some people with irritable bowel syndrome, this is a little bit... Um, sensitive let's say so if they were to have something which is particularly high in fat then this might actually cause looser stools quite urgent loose stools and often there's a bit of confusion between this and FODMAPs and that the way to know is if they have more of an immediate reaction after eating or within you know 20 minutes because that's the sort of time frame whereas FODMAPs take quite a bit longer um supplements there's a few supplements we can use as well i actually rarely use supplements with clients i find that if we're looking at the other elements which we'll go through in a minute then we typically don't need them and um, you can use some probiotics what i find with probiotics is they can work for some people but they're not going to resolve the whole situation and that kind of adds up when you think about ibs because ibs is multifactorial so for us just to put one probiotic and expect them to completely alleviate all symptoms is probably unrealistic but you can look at certain probiotics just look up 
look at the research behind which ones you're using. Peppermint oil capsules has got some good research around it with specifically looking at pain. But please do avoid things like um, your wheat bran because it's been shown to worsen symptoms because it contains FODMAPs. And also looking at things like charcoal tablets, which I still see unfortunately routinely uh, prescribed by some gastroenterologists. Just they are prescribed for things like your gas, but actually with the gas, unfortunately, it, it may or may not work. The research is, is so poor behind it, it's pretty much irrelevant. But regardless of that, the issue of the charcoal is that it's got quite a porous surface and it can absorb micronutrients as well. So it could actually lead potentially to nutritional deficiency. So there's no actual benefit to taking it and there could be some negatives. So please avoid those ones as well. Um, linseed is probably the last thing I'm going to go through before I go into the low FODMAP diet. But linseed is one of my favorite things to use just because it's so simple. It's adding another plant source into your diet which we know the more plant sources you've got or the clients got the better their diversity is going to be in their, their microbiome or microbiota and we can go up to two tablespoons a day um, which is per the british dietetic association guidelines now what this does is it forms like a gel in the bowel and helps people go to the toilet so it's particularly good for constipation and it will really help with bloating in those in those clients as well just be careful. I'd probably avoid it in some of the looser stools. And sometimes people can go from being constipated to looser as they maybe tolerate more fiber as they go along. So I would have a little look at those things. And fiber is something as well we need to think about. There is limited research in terms of specific fiber recommendations in IBS. So I touched on how we can improve microbiota earlier in terms of trying to get 30 grams of fiber a day. However, that's from a general population stand. So you might find your clients manage a lot less or a lot more and try and get them towards the 30 grams because if you do this slowly, from what I found in my own practice, you can mostly get people up there, but just do it slowly because their gut's not used to it. So if you're expecting someone to eat that overnight, that's going to cause a whole lot of symptoms in someone's gut who's already sensitive. We often see this at times, this time of year where we're recording in January, it's veganuary. So a lot of people um, suddenly diagnose themselves with IBS and haven't got IBS, they've just gone from eating no fiber to eating vegetables all day. So the gut is not going to adapt that quickly. So we just need a little bit more time on that. Do you have any questions at all about that before I go on to the low FODMAP diet? That's oh, it's really interesting to hear, actually, though, that this time of year, you seem to hear from patients about irritable bowel syndrome or any other symptoms related to that due to veganuary. Just wouldn't think of that, but actually, yeah, it must be something that clinicians do see, particularly if you're seeing people year on year, see those patterns. Is there anything else you see like that with clients in particular around IBS? Um, it can't yeah there is certain times of year so ramadan's another one um especially now being in dubai i've got a lot of muslim clients um and we see changes in that time as well just because typically and i culturally it'll be different around the world as well depending on where they are and the times as well ramadan changes obviously like when whenever the sun's setting depends on where you are in the world um, but typically we're, you're not eating all day and then it's quite a social time in the evening so that's not necessarily the most balanced food always so the combination um, if you've already got IBS can worsen it and there are some people with IBS out there who kind of I guess it trickles along it's not great symptoms but they just put up with it and then when it gets to things like vegan neuro where they want to try a vegan diet or during ramadan where they are fasting it then just makes the symptoms a lot worse so we do see um some things like that um 
So yeah, interesting. And doesn't mean that we can't do it, but we just need to modify it. So with being, if somebody wants to do the vegan diet for their own ethical reasons, or then that's absolutely fine. But we just need to be able to modify a little bit um, and just allow that gut time to get used to it. And the same with Ramadan doesn't mean that someone cannot fast. I've always helped my clients be able to do that. That's, that's not an issue, but we just need to be a little bit more mindful about what we are eating in the times that we are eating and what else we're doing and things like that. So it's just a little bit more difficult, that's all. Yeah, that's interesting. You have to be so adaptive as a dietitian or healthcare professional to all your different patients. So um, it would be really good to hear about how the low FODMAP diet fits in and where that comes in with second line strategies. Yeah, so low FODMAP diet is like a whole chapter on its own, doesn't it? <laughs> Where do you start? So low FODMAP diet is probably, um, and I'm biased, obviously I only see IBS clients for a long time now, so I'm biased in this. It's probably the most exciting thing that's happened in IBS probably in a long time in terms of I remember when I qualified and I'm only in my 30s now, it's not like that long ago to be honest, but we were seeing clients in clinic and we would give them like a soluble diet, fiber diet sheet or something like this. And you'd be like, yeah, just try and manage your stress or, you know, kind of vague things and you someone would either come back as they look it didn't work or you just wouldn't see them again and we probably did weren't really hitting the nail on the head to be honest and then the low FODMAP diet came in and suddenly we see really really great results so the low FODMAP diet just to kind of recap for anyone's listening to this and I think what on earth is that it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides disaccharides monosaccharides and polyols it is basically there are different types of carbohydrates found in various types of different foods they go into your stomach like all the rest of the food would do then into a small bowel again like all the rest of the food but they start being digested in your large bowel so this is where your microbiota is your your gut bacteria actually and this breaks down the the FODMAPs and as a result it produces a lot of gas and it can then draw in water through osmosis so people get varying symptoms with it but they get if they're more IBSC they're obviously not being fed affected by the looser stools the water being drawn in but they're affected by the pain and also the gas and bloating from the excess gas and if you've got more diarrhea predominant symptoms then they are being affected by the the gas as well because it comes out like a rocket but also the, the liquid as well now what we do is we reduce all these down for a period of four to six weeks so it's a low FODMAP not a no FODMAP diet looking at food intolerances and then we reintroduce one type of FODMAP at a time to find out a what it is that's causing the issue and b how much of that 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 food can they have before it becomes a problem for example they might be able to manage a couple of sizes of bread for breakfast for toast but if they then have bread again later in the day that might be too much for them and that's this really important to kind of sell us as a process is a diagnostic process it's not a diet forever because actually we know from research in the restriction phase because we are restricting foods that are feeding your gut bacteria that that's going to have a negative impact on your gut bacteria so we don't want this forever it's just to diagnose your what your intolerances are well thank you for giving us that really in-depth explanation of how different dietary components can affect ibs and yeah i think it's really great that you've also mentioned things like ramadan and how that might affect someone with ibs because i'm from dubai as well but i had never even thought of how someone with ibs it might be a whole different experience for them um we had a browse through your website and were intrigued by your take control program I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about this program. 
Yeah, sure. So the Take Control program, super cheesy name, but that's what it is. It's about that person taking control of their gut because a lot of people feel that they're just completely out of control. They don't understand what's going on. But essentially, it's an online program which takes the sufferer with irritable bowel syndrome step by step, sort of like hand-holding them, essentially, from where they are now, which is where they've just been diagnosed, to the end state, which is where they know exactly what's causing their problem. And also, they're in a place where they've created this environment where their gut will continue to improve. So every element is evidence-based. So it's based on um, actual research. So we know that, for instance, like... The diets that we're advising and looking at sleep and things like this will will definitely improve their gut. And it actually incorporates four elements. So it incorporates the nutrition, the movement, sleep optimization, and then mental well-being. So as I said, to identify what the food trigger is, but also improves the gut function and health. Because if we think we're going to just resolve IBS by looking at nutrition alone, it's multifactorial. We need to look at the whole situation. That's really good to hear that you've included um, all the lifestyle factors that might be factors in someone's um, IBS and in their specific lifestyle and how that can help. We have one last question for you today. And this one is um, more more related to you and what you do to look after your gut. Yeah, so so many things. And I would say I'm not perfect. I always say, I, I sometimes joke to my clients and say, maybe I need to take more of my own advice. We're not robots in the day. But my main thing personally is movement. So I think growing up, I had quite a poor relationship with exercise because I actually had IBS myself, didn't have the best relationship with my body. And I was in that generation where exercise was all about the way you looked, or, you know, losing weight, etc. Which is quite sad, isn't it, when we think about the benefit of exercise. It's so much more than that. So I like to call it movement in the program. So I try to move every day. And that's really helped me, really help me in my gut. So if I'm really stressed that day, or if I'm if I am bloated, or if something has gone maybe not quite right, even if it's just getting down on a yoga mat and stretching for half an hour, or going for a walk with my little girl, or going to the gym, it doesn't really matter. I will do something every single day, regardless of what it is, to just move. And I find that's got the the biggest benefit for me personally. It was great to speak with you today. Thanks for joining us. And yeah, I feel like I've learned so much about IBS and functional gut disorders. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.